Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, which should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. There is a rare form of genetic epilepsy. The name comes from the gene PCDH19. Seizures, usually starting between the ages of three months and three years, are typically the first sign of this type of epilepsy. Today's guest on our podcast is Hannah Deacon from the UK, whose son Alfie was experiencing hundreds of seizures a month until he was given cannabis oil. Hannah, thanks for doing this. Before we talk about Alfie's story, though, I want to ask you, how did his condition in the early days impact you psychologically, knowing that your little boy was suffering and there was very little you could do about it? Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you both. Well, I was diagnosed with PTSD when my son was five. I think that sort of sums it all up. I had complex PTSD, so a repeated trauma over and over again. My son, by the time he was five, was in hospital every week in an ambulance, going into high dependency, being held down and having needles uh, put into him. His veins were failing. We were discussing having a port put into him because he was so seriously ill all the time and we couldn't get medication into him quick enough. It caused me and my partner severe trauma. And I think I got as low as I possibly could to the point where I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to parent a child that was suffering so deeply. And it's why I decided to fight for him. Now, did you think that any point during his uh, ailment that you would lose him? Oh, yes. Every time he went into a cluster of seizures, he was having up to 150 back-to-back tonic-clonic seizures. He was on life support machine four or five times. By the time he was five, when his clusters of seizures were every week, he was living on 25 doses of methylprednisolone a month, plus other anti-epileptics, every month. And we were told by his doctors that whilst there was nothing they could do other than give him these drugs, because they were stopping his seizures only for a bit for three or four days, um, that they could cause heart failure, kidney failure, liver failure. Um, so if seizures didn't kill him, it was likely the medication that was being given to him would kill him. So every time he had a seizure, not only was he being traumatized emotionally and physically, but you were being Hugely. traumatized. Like I can't even imagine as a mother or a parent looking at your child going through that and not being able to do anything. No, it was. it goes against every sinew in your body as a mother to allow your child to be hurt the way he was being hurt one by his condition but two by physicians who were you know trying to help him right but they were hurting him and I remember saying to my sister once that you wouldn't treat a dog like him and I still stand by that you know that yeah. the way he, his quality of life was so poor that I cannot believe still to this day that he was allowed to suffer in that way especially when there is a medicine that helps him so much that I found for him. Yeah, I find it shocking that children are, you know, allowed to be left in that way. And there are millions of children throughout the world who are suffering with refractory epilepsy that are allowed to be left in that way. And I think it's utterly disgraceful. Kana, could you explain to people who maybe aren't familiar with seizures what tonic-clonic seizures are? 
Yeah, they used to be called Grand Mal. So people might know what Grand Mal is. Um, it's basically a full body seizure. So he would always wake up at two, three in the morning, go into a massive seizure, which he would scream. So he would wake up screaming. That's why I also had PTSD, because being woken up by your child screaming into a seizure is something that will, you know, traumatise anyone once. But I was having that 52 weeks a year. So was my partner. And uh, it's a full body seizure. So his sats would drop down sometimes to 40, 30, and he would be full, fully, you know, into a seizure with blue, a uh, blue face where he wasn't breathing. Wow. Yeah. Good, Hannah. I'm surprised that you don't have gray hair like me. I do. I have, I just dye it. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me young. <laughs> now, I was reading in your story that Alfie in 2016 was admitted to hospital 48 times. That's almost once a week. Yes. Yeah. So once a week, two or three o'clock in the morning, he would wake up screaming, go into a clonic, a tonic clonic seizure. We would ring an ambulance. The ambulance people would come. We knew them. By that point, um, they would put him in an ambulance. He would have two or three seizures on, on the way to hospital. We would get an IV into him. He would be given doses of phenobarbital, steroid. He would have that every 24 hours for about three days. By that time, the seizures will have stopped. We would take him home. He would spend two or three days punching me and kicking me and hitting me and going from screaming to crying to laughing because he was coming off all the drugs that he'd been given, but also because he was, had had a lot of seizures, so his brain was very upset. We made had we maybe had one, two days at most where we had some sort of normality, and then it would happen again. And I remember I, I was very lucky actually that I went, to, I, I did go and see a counsellor before I took my son to Holland because I was in such a, a, a bad way, and I spent every week just talking to him and crying. And I remember him saying to me, this is the gift that keeps on giving in the sense that that's why I was diagnosed with, uh, you know, PTSD, complex PTSD, because that's what it was. It was just this circle of trauma every week. And I knew it was coming. And that's when you know that something is coming that is going to traumatize you. That mm -hmm. really does mess with you. And it was very, very hard. And I, I you know, I, I got, as I say, I got to the point where I, used to visualize how I might kill myself because I couldn't cope with it then it was horrendous and I'm very very pleased always that I decided to fight for him because I think if I hadn't I don't think I'd be here and I, he probably would well, most definitely wouldn't be here either how old was uh, Elfie when he had his first seizure he was eight months old so eight months old I remember it's 27th of May 2012 um, I put him to bed I'd just gone back to work I was woken at midnight with him screaming and I went into his room and he was having a seizure, something I'd never seen. No one in my family has epilepsy, autism, learning difficulties, anything like that. So that day, my life changed forever. I was thrown into a world that I didn't know about anything about. I didn't, I'd never been in, interacting at all with anyone with disabilities, which I'm very ashamed to say, you know, that frightened me a lot being in a hospital full of children with disability or, or very poorly and yeah it took me on a, a very different path to what I expected and I think it's something I have talked about before is that you know when your child is disabled you are grieving for that child every day because they're not who you thought they'd be you always have a vision of how life would be I think we all realize that actually that 
when you think of all the way your life's going to be, it never, never usually ends up mm-hmm. like that. But as a teenager or as a young woman, I always imagined I'd meet the love of my life and I'd have children and they'd grow up and, you know, I'd be a granny and all those things that we think that that's how our lives are going to be. That's how all my friends' children were. They were fine. And then when that happened to me, that was the biggest shock. And I felt very, very alone because I didn't know anyone with a child with epilepsy. And I think that's what's been such a positive thing for me on this journey is actually um, I've found so many mums like me and dads like me who have really suffered. And actually, it doesn't help you to get over it at all, but it helps you to feel safer that actually there are other people in the world that understand how you feel. Because it is, it's very, very tough. Hannah, as your son got older and sort of had at some level somewhat of an understanding of what was going on with him, how did he cope with that? How did he deal with that? Did he ever voice that he just wanted to be normal or did he just kind of take it in stride because it was all he'd ever known or, or what? He has got an intellectual disability, so he has got a learning difficulty and he didn't, so for example, he didn't walk till he was nearly two. He didn't speak at all till he was about two and a half and then when he did it was two or three words and as again the time that I saw his development change is when he started taking cannabis he started talking he started interacting with the world around him up until that point he really had no understanding of the world around him and I actually only realized that he which makes me feel terrible but I only realized that he was traumatized when we got back from Holland where we treated him with cannabis and I took him to the hospital to see the paediatrician and he broke down in tears and he was six at the time and said no mummy no mummy and I just broke down too and I thought I just can't believe that he even remembers this place because I thought that he never remembered anything I thought that he didn't know what was going on he really knew what was going on and he was really deeply traumatized and so that's what you know, spurred us on as a family to save him and to stop him going through that because it's unbearable. It's unbearable to let your child feel that way. And so I don't really fully understand how he feels about it because he can't express that. All I know now is that he's a very happy child. He has autism. That can be challenging still. But we don't deal with the sort of severe medical emergencies and his life is is very happy on the whole. What what was the turning point? When did you decide enough is enough and you're going to take things into your own hand and see if there's anything out there that you can possibly do? It was when he was diagnosed with his condition. So that wasn't until he was five. So PCDH19 is a condition that is usually only affects girls. So my understanding is there's around 20 to 30,000 girls in the world with that condition. It's on the X chromosome. So when children have that mutated gene, girls have that mutated gene, there is no, they will have seizures to varying degrees. It really just depends sometimes very severely, sometimes not so. Sometimes development is normal, sometimes it isn't. But with boys, when it's on the X chromosome, the Y chromosome takes over. So there could be lots of boys with PCDH19 mutation, but they don't have seizures because they have the Y chromosome takes over the mutation. But with Alfie, he's got something called mosaicism, which means that he's only got some genes that are mutated. It's environmental. So I don't have that mutation, nor did his dad. So something happened to him that caused this. And, uh, uh, you know, that's why he's he's symptomatic. Um, When we were given that diagnosis and the neurologist said, 
we can firefight. Let's hope that he gets better with age. I realised that they didn't know what they were doing and no disrespect to them at all in the sense I've got great relationships with Alfie's doctors. Uh, but the, the the guy that actually, we don't see him anymore, the guy that gave the diagnosis to us phoned us on Christmas Eve, told us on Christmas Eve that Alfie had this life-changing diagnosis and that there was nothing that could be done. And at that point, I just thought, no, I'm fed up with trusting people to save his life because actually they won't. And I, I really thought he was going to die. And I thought as his mother, I need to know that if I bury my child, that I have fought tooth and nail to give him a good life and that's when it changed and that's when I started fighting and actually when I started to trust myself as his mother I started to fight and I went online and thought right okay how do we replicate steroids what natural thing in this world is there that is anti-inflammatory because we know that Alfie's epilepsy doesn't respond to steroids uh, anti-epileptic sorry only to steroids so we've used anti-epileptics loads of times with him and they don't stop his seizures with steroids. They do. So we, I knew steroids had a had a role to play in stopping his seizures, and I knew that they're anti-inflammatory. That's where I began. I went online and just started googling epilepsy treatments and found Dr. William O'Shaughnessy using epilepsy uh, using cannabis for epilepsy in India in the eighteen seventies. And I thought, well, this is interesting because I before that point I knew cannabis as you know, hash in college, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, having a smoke, having, if, you know, a few biscuits, not, not something I used a lot, but I had smoked cannabis in, you know, when I was younger. Uh, that's all I thought it was. It was a recreational drug. And then I realized it was a medicine and I did loads of research and found out about the endocannabinoid system. I actually contacted some amazing families in America whose children have PCDH19 who are using cannabis alongside conventional medicine and were seeing amazing results. I joined a really good Facebook group that's also in America, which is about treating children with cannabis um, for autism and epilepsy, and just read the stories. And I just thought, well, this is something I've got to do. Um, I went to my neurologist and talked to him about, I said, you know, I've found this wonderful medicine that could help Alfie. And he said, well, there is a trial for Epidiolex. So that's the GW Pharma Mm -hmm. CBD only licensed now licensed in the UK product but at the time this is 2016 it was in trial he said I can try and get you a place on that on that trial for Alfie and we couldn't get that so that's when I said well we're going to go to Holland then and we decided to go to Holland because at that point the UK was still in the EU and we would still get you know cheaper medical care we'd be able to get insurance we couldn't get insurance to come to Canada or America it just was impossible because Alfie was so poorly Um, And in September 2017, after raising money to go, because I was a full-time carer, not working, and my partner was working all the hours to keep our house going, so we didn't have any money. We did raise money. We had great local support and national support at that point because we started a petition. We started our Facebook page. We did all the things and moved to Holland. and, and, And I just never thought about the next day, actually. I just thought, I've got to take him. I just had this burning need in my body to take him and try cannabis and I'm very very grateful every day that I did and but it took me you know five years of watching him suffer before I decided to do that. Do you remember the first time you gave him cannabis? Yeah I remember going to get it from the pharmacy because we had a a pediatric neurologist prescribe it in the Hague in, in Holland 
she prescribed it on September the 19th after seeing him. We were very lucky to find her. We, I actually have a friend that lives in my town that's Dutch and she phoned around all the hospitals in Holland and found a, a, a doctor willing to treat Alfie, which was amazing. I'm very grateful to her. And we went to the hospital and she prescribed and we drove to the pharmacy and I walked into the pharmacy and picked it up and just, we we, we went home and we all we gave him initially was 10 milligrams. Uh, so we, we give him a high CBD, low THC tincture. It, you know, it's, it, it's a very whole plant cannabis tincture. It's not messed with, it's not pharmaceutical in any sense. It's just a, a whole plant extract. Gave him the first one and hoped and actually... It didn't do anything to him for six weeks. So six weeks we spent going into hospital every week in Holland and it did nothing. And it was only when we got to 150 milligrams of CBD that he started to go longer without and not have seizures. So it took a long time. It, and I always say that when I speak to parents, you've got to be so patient. It, it takes a long time to work sometimes with very severe epilepsy. And I, you know, I remember, <laughs> I know it sounds a bit funny, but driving out one day when he was in hospital to go and get some food, and I pulled over to the side of the road and, and burst into floods of tears and just said, universe, please help me. Please make this work. And the next couple of days, he started to go, you know, not have seizures. He went 17 days the first time when I realised it was working. 17 days with no seizures, which was like a miracle for us. That's a bit of a respite for you psychologically, too, knowing that your son is not having seizures and as well, it's not impacting you and you can see improvement in them. Yeah. I mean, I was living in a fight or flight situation for years. I was living on adrenaline. I didn't, I didn't ever look after myself. I didn't ever try to face how I was feeling. And it was only when his seizures started to stop that I started to face how, how messed up I was really. And it's, um, you know, Alfie's coming up to three years with no seizures now um and that's given me and my partner an opportunity to heal but I don't think it's changed me forever what I've been through I don't think you know I don't think I'll ever be the same again and as I said to you I'm not actually sad about that because whatever I mean I would take Alfie's condition away from him tomorrow if he if I had a choice of course I'd never want him to have seizures but actually there has been positives that have come out of it for me and my family and and for my sort of personal development, I've changed a lot. I've become a warrior mum that I wasn't before. And I think that that's why I try to look at the positives of Alfie being sent to us as has actually made us understand what life's about. I think a lot of people spend their life really, really worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. And actually, if you've got people that love you and you've got your health, that's all you need. Yeah, very true. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> very true. Do you, or did you at any time, kind of blame yourself for Elfie's condition? Yes. For many years, I had a lot of guilt because I wondered what I'd done to cause him to be mm-hmm. like this. Was it that I had, I mean, I spoke to lots of doctors. I spoke to a preconception doctor who was convinced that the reason children were becoming what she felt was more disabled in birth is because of, um, or having these genetic problems was because of the overuse of the contraceptive pill. And she very much believes that, you know, she's not actually with us anymore, but she was saying to me, I believe all women should stop the contraceptive pill for at least six months before they have children because they shouldn't be getting pregnant with synthetic hormones in their bodies. I, I'd come off the pill two weeks before I got pregnant, mm. you know, and 
So, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking, what did I do? Was it that? Was it that I had one glass of wine when I didn't know I was pregnant? Was it was it his vaccinations when he was a baby? Was it, you know, was it all these things that you're told to do that might have caused that? I don't know. Uh, I spent many years feeling that way that it was or was it the antibiotics he was given as a baby or what was it? What I learned to do is put that into positive action. When I started to decide to heal him, it was a lot to do with the fact that I felt guilty as well. I thought I have to do everything I can in my power to help him because it will make me feel better. And also as well, I, I will say he's my first child. And when he I gave birth to him, I had a very traumatic birth. I, I really struggled to breastfeed him. I felt I really felt the first six months of his life I found very hard. I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't. I probably had postnatal anxiety. I was very anxious. I didn't sleep. I struggled to to be happy as his mother. And so when he became very poorly, the guilt I felt because of that also was really, really hard because I thought, why didn't I just enjoy him? If I knew what was coming, why didn't I just enjoy him? So yeah, absolutely. I spent years blaming myself for lots of different reasons. And actually, I don't do that anymore because I accept that life sends us these things for that's how I that's how I sort of deal with it is I I believe that life sends us these things for a reason and he's my child for a reason and actually his legacy is that hopefully in time we have brought cannabis to patients in the UK which you know that's a pretty good legacy for him to have absolutely What's an ordinary day look like now, a normal day look like as far as his usage and what he can do and seizure wise and all of that? And how much does he take, et cetera? Yeah, so he takes 360 milligrams of CBD a day. He takes about 10 to 12 milligrams of THC. He also takes THCA. So he takes about five milligrams of THCA a day because he doesn't, he, he can't be on too much THC. It makes him agitated. So we had to spend quite a lot of time finding the right dose. And, and, it, and to be very clear, he's also on antiepileptics still. So we did try to wean his antiepileptics, but he became ill again. His seizures came back after we got his prescription funded on the NHS because I've very, very strongly always wanted him not to be on pharmaceutical medication because they the side effects for him were very severe. But my my neurologist said to me, Hannah, you know, he's got the worst epilepsy I've seen in my time as a neurologist. He's like, you're not going to be able to just use cannabis. He's very accepting that the cannabis works for him. Alfie was on midazolam and five antiepileptics and still having seizures. So we know the cannabis absolutely is what stops his seizures, but in conjunction with a, a low dose of pharmaceutical medication. And that's what we have to accept. Um, he has been seizure free now for nearly three years. So May 2023, it'll be three years. Wow. Um, that has meant that he is learning to talk. He's learning to read. He's le- He's got a sense of humour. He's learning to talk to f- peers. He goes to a special school. So he's in a special school with other children with learning difficulties and autism. And But he's got friends, you know, before... When he had seizures, he only ever looked to adults for play because he never went to school. He never had, you know, he never did anything with children. So he was always looking to adults for play, but now he doesn't. He plays football, he plays rugby, he can ride a bike. His quality of life is, is oh, he, he rides horses. So every Saturday he goes to the Disabled Society, the horse place near us and rides horses and 
he we have dogs and he he plays with the dogs so his quality of life is incredible compared to what it was his world has opened up so much he plays with his sister he's got much more normal his sister's eight years old um we had her before Alfie got very seriously ill so she was born when Alfie was three um at that at that point he was only having what I would say only but having clusters of seizures every eight months so it was much more manageable it was only when he got to sort of four or five it became really bad um but he has a more normal experience with her now you know some days they get on well some days they fight which is normal siblings so and we and we just for example in half term which was just a few weeks ago we went on holiday for three days to Devon to the seaside never we would never have been able to do that before and it was actually very pleasant and enjoyable which is lovely you know he loved it we had a nice time and it, that's all I ever craved when he was poorly I used to sit um in my lounge and look out the window because I had a school at the end of my road and all the mums walking past with their children and I just desperately wanted to be one of those mums that just took her kids to school you know I just wanted to be that mummy that could drop her child off at school and go and do some shopping or you know have a normal life I just wanted to be that normal mum and I am now I send him off on the bus to school every day um and I don't know how long this will last you know I have to be very clear it's not some miracle cure Alfie may get poorly again I think it's probably likely he will but until while he's well his life is really good and and I use my time now to work within the UK medical cannabis space to help people get access to medicine because it's I feel really strongly that a lot of the time women like me are full-time carers to sick children and we are completely forgotten you know it's your job you're his mum no I didn't sign up to take care of my child for the rest of my life I have the right to work I have the right to socialize I have the right as a woman to have a life and that's really important to me so I do I try to do you know when I can talk about that in the media talk about the social and economic issues about helping children to be well so women like me can be part of society and that's really really important and Elfie was the first patient in the UK to be given a permanent medical cannabis authority or license or whatever it is that he was granted is that correct yeah so before the law changed, so what happened is we were in Holland for six months, nearly six months. We wanted to come home. Alfie had gone 40 days with no seizures. And when he did have seizures, he only needed one dose of steroids. So we reduced the need um, for the drugs as much as he was on. And we felt really strongly we wanted to be at home. I remember my partner went home with my daughter for a couple of days and he came back and he said, I can't do this anymore. I, I want to go home. I don't want to. He wanted to work. He didn't want to live in Holland and nor did I. So. In January 2018, we decided to come home. We came home in the February 18, and that's when I launched my campaign within the Houses of Parliament and within the media. And we were very lucky because the media took us to their hearts. I went on to a programme called BBC Breakfast at the end of February 18, which is the BBC, you know, the mm -hmm. main sort of breakfast show, and talked about the fact that Alfie had used cannabis in Holland, that it had worked, that it stopped his seizures, that I believed he had the right to use it in this country and it'd be funded by the NHS. Um, and the Home Office at that point, because they were Home Office were dealing with it, because it's a schedule at the time, a schedule one drug with no medical value. They said, cannabis is a schedule one drug with no medical value and we will not allow this to be available to Alfie on the NHS. That's where we were. 
Um, I had a petition that at that point had 360,000 signatures on, and I presented that to number 10, which is where the Prime Minister resides. And I was invited in to meet the Prime Minister, Theresa May at the time, uh, to tell her about Alfie, and I did. Um, And we're very grateful because there was a lot of parliamentarians behind the scenes lobbying her to see me and making that happen. Um, And she allowed the... um, our doctors to apply for a Schedule 1 licence because it's an illegal drug. My doctor, very sadly, in the NHS was blocked from helping us because it was cannabis. And even though he was very supportive, he was told he couldn't help us. So that's when I met um, a gentleman called Professor Mike Barnes, who I now work with as well, who's a neurologist, and he made the application for that licence. We went quiet for three months because we worked at the Home Office and we said we wouldn't seek media attention And then in June 18, there was uh, another case where a child um, got a temporary licence in a hospital, which was fine, important thing to do to keep that child safe. Um, But I said to the Home Office, you know, I've done everything the right way and you're making my son suffer and wait. He was in hospital again. Um, So I went on to a programme called the Today Programme on Radio 4 on the 18th of, no, sorry, 19th of June 2018. And and basically said, Theresa May promised to help me. And this is three months later when my child is very ill. This is not politics. This is about someone's health. And within three hours, the Home Secretary announced in Parliament that Alfie was getting his licence and his funding from the NHS. When the law changed on the 1st of November, that was off the back of the Home Secretary saying that the Chief Medical Officer needed to look into cannabis. Was it something that, that should be legal as medicine? Um, she said that it had good evidence for epilepsy, pain and uh, sickness from chemotherapy. So when the law changed on the 1st of November 2018 to allow doctors on the specialist register to prescribe, Alfie had the first NHS prescription issued to him then. because And now you don't need a licence. And, and the law now says that any specialist doctor on the specialist register can prescribe privately or through the NHS to allow access to these unlicensed cannabis medicines. Sadly, um, we've got the National Institute of Clinical Excellence who evaluate drugs and they've looked at cannabis and said, oh, no, it's not a pharmaceutical. There's no pharmaceutical testing other than Epidiolex. So it's not available on the NHS. And that's that's where we are at the moment. So there's private access, but there's no NHS access. So there's only three prescriptions on the NHS for children with epilepsy. And that's it in the last five, nearly five years. Hannah, as you were talking and you indicated that some of the politicians and some of the organizations in the UK don't believe there's any science behind cannabis. Mm. Uh, I want to read you this because it comes from a website in the UK. It says, the findings show that more than 4,300 cannabis studies were published worldwide in the last 12 months. PubMed, a free resource supporting the search and retrieval of biomedical and life sciences literature, now cites over 42,500 scientific papers on cannabis or marijuana. And uh, Corey and I have done this program for the last six years with a two-year hiatus. But I cannot tell you how many doctors and how many scientists say we need more studies there are thousands and thousands and thousands of studies they just haven't looked at them for whatever reason yeah i think i'm sure it's the same everywhere but doctors in the in the uk very conservative and they also think that unless studies have been done here that they're not (laughs) they're not you know robust enough or whatever but um they 
they think that RCT, randomised control trials, are the only way to test safety, unless you're rolling out the COVID vaccine or yeah, right. you know, to pregnant women, which was done on real world evidence. That was done on real world evidence to pregnant women. And that's what really frustrates me is that I remember listening to the chief nurse on Radio 4 saying, oh, we're going to give pregnant women the COVID vaccine based on real world evidence. And I thought, well, why can you do that? Why is that safe? But giving children with severe epilepsy, unlicensed cannabis products that are very safe, uh, not giving it to them and allowing them to die is okay. It's not about that. I, I don't think it's about data. I think it's about stigma. I think it's about the fact that it's not a classic pharmaceutical. Doctors are trained to prescribe pharmaceutical drugs. They're not trained mm-hmm. in botanical medicine. They're not trained in health, really. No, they're they're not. not trained in how to, to, you know, and that's the problem. You know, I think cannabis is about health and they, they don't understand that. And, you know, I've got, as I say, I've got some wonderful doctors that look after Alfie and there are some wonderful doctors out there. At the moment in the UK, there's 110 doctors prescribing privately. Those people should be very much commended because they're doing the right thing. They are seeing patients with pain and mental health issues saying, you know, we are at the end of the road and they're prescribing cannabis and seeing amazing results. You know, those people are wonderful. So I'm really not doctor bashing, but there are some doctors in the hierarchy of the NHS who are ignorant and just will not learn about this. And and as you say, say, oh, we need more. We need more studies. Yes, we need to understand cannabis more because it's the most amazing plant Mm -hmm. and the endocannabinoid system is the most amazing receptor system. We need to understand it, but that shouldn't stop prescribing. And that's that's the problem. It, It does. And and I never understand the mentality that you are happy to prescribe the long-term use of benzodiazepines to babies, but you will not consider a plant-based medicine. I really do not understand that because that is not about health. That's not about health. That's not about saving someone's life. That's about protecting some ideology, as far as I'm concerned, that health is got through prescribing of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, pharmaceuticals saved my son's life so again i'm not bashing them but they are not the only thing that can help you to be well Mm -hmm. and that's why you know i I, we have to have a sea change on the attitude to health i think very much so hannah your story is truly remarkable and i just want to say that you're a remarkable mother and have you tried cannabis yourself i have yes yes and um, i think with the ptsd you should Yes, I, I do. Yeah, it's and I'm uh, yeah I'm I'm well I don't haven't told anyone this but I am a prescribed patient now. Oh, good. Uh, myself, um, so that's an exclusive for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I have, and and I'm very lucky that again I, I work um, and helped create a, an organisation called the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society. And any doctors listening to this from around the world, I would urge you to join us. We are a a group of over 400 doctors and and allied health workers. We have a really good peer support group where all doctors, you know, use that to help them prescribe sometimes when they're concerned or they need data or they need understanding of a process. And we have lots of international members who have been a great support to our new UK prescribers who need that handholding from experienced doctors. So we've got, you know, Evan Lewis, for example, and Sandra Carrillo from Columbia. And we've got some amazing doctors in there that have really helped and supported our UK doctors. And, um, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm on that committee and I've got some very supportive doctors by me. And it is something I've tried so many things, you know, uh, hypnotherapy and lots of and counselling and meditation, lots of things. and 
Um, I do, yeah, I have found that um, a very small amount of cannabis has helped me at night because that's when I get my trauma. I'm okay during the day. It's, it's at night. Mm-hmm. As soon as it gets dark and Alfie's gone to bed, I get, I can get very, very anxious and traumatised and that's, and that's really helped me to not be like that. And that's been great. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a great, I'm a great advocate. Well, it was great of you to do this. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to meet you both. Thank you so much, Anna. Much appreciated. Before we go, I want to let our listeners know that you can help us spread the word about the amazing, often life-saving health benefits of cannabis just by sharing the podcast, writing a review, or rating us. We very much appreciate uh, the help of everyone who's done that already. And we really like the five-star ratings. We'd also like to thank those of you who support the show by making a one-time donation or a monthly donation on our Patreon page, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. That helps to keep us running. You'll find out how to do that on our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Thank you for your support. It means so much to us. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.